listening to the Central Station Podcast, where we bring you true stories of what life in the outback is really like and why many wouldn't live anywhere else. So pull up a stump, pop the billy on, or crack a cold one, as we talk to the men and women who call some of the most remote parts of Australia home. This podcast is brought to you by Pioneer Water Tanks. Every Pioneer tank is made with the exclusive Pioneer V-Lock wall profile, a stronger and stiffer corrugation profile, which not only looks great, it lasts longer. The Pioneer V-Lock wall profile also protects the liner from overstretching, so it lasts longer in the tank. Welcome to the Central Station Podcast. My name is Steph Coombs, and in today's episode, I'm sitting down with Caitlin Mills. Caitlin has been working on stations in the Pilbara and Kimberley regions of Western Australia for the past decade. And in this episode, we have a chat about how she got into the industry and her time in the Pilbara. Later on, Caitlin spins us a yarn about her first experience with the Royal Flying Doctor Service. So make sure you stick around for that one. Now, the first 10 minutes of this episode has a bit of a crackle to the audio, and then it magically disappears. Don't you just love technology? I'm just giving you a heads up because it does go away. So if you can just persist through the first few minutes, you'll be fine. And today I am recording the introduction for this episode from the kitchen at Limestone Station in the East Pilbara region of Western Australia. And I have a special guest with me, the uh, future head stockman, and he'd like to say a few words. Now, like most stockmen, George prefers to speak into a two-way radio rather than a microphone, so that's all we managed to get out of him, but hopefully when he's a little bit older, we'll get him back on the podcast. Anyway, let's get on to Caitlin's episode now. Welcome to the podcast, Caitlin. Hi, how are you? I'm fabulous today. How are you? Yeah, super good. Where are you today and what is going on in your part of the world? Ah, I'm sitting in the uh, Frangipani Resort all by myself in uh, lockdown because that's just what goes these days. Yeah, that is the world we live in at the moment. Um, and are you, so you're like on a bit of a couch with some air con. Are you like comfortable? Correct. I'm very comfortable. Okay. It's disgusting outside. So <laughs> it is. I know it's honestly, I thought it was going to be dry season soon. I went to the beach yesterday morning and the water was like a tiny bit chilly. And I was like, oh my God, dry season. And then yesterday I had washing out the line all day and by the evening, like it was still damp. And I was like, damn it, the humidity, it's still wet season. <laughs> anyway, um, the reason I wanted it's Alice. still holding on. I know it just will not let go. Like it's wet season. It's time to let go. Move on. Just do what the rest of us can't do with many things in our lives and move on. Um, anyway, the reason I wanted to get a idea of where you are right now is because you are the third heavily pregnant woman that I've had on this podcast. The first one was Pip, who was episode 15. And we actually did that interview face to face. And to do that, I made her turn off all her aircon and fans. We sat on the hard tile floor of her house and... She was, yeah, like weeks away. Like I think she ended up having the baby like two weeks later. And then the next heavily pregnant woman I recorded a podcast yet with, um, and that episode hasn't come out yet, and I think I'm going to hold on to it for a little while, is our friend Katie. 
And as you saw when you came over my house the other week, what I did is I put all my chairs on my dining table and put a big doona over them. And then we sat at the dining table in under like this fortress thing. I also turned off the air con. Um, so I basically <laughs> made, Katie was, Katie was not even 10 days out from having a baby when we recorded that episode. And I was so like adamant that she record it on that day. Cause I was like, if you don't do it today, you will have the baby tomorrow. Um, but yeah, so she also had to sweat it out. Um, so for people, but at least she got to sit on a chair. She wasn't sitting on the floor. So I just want our listeners to. You're um, a hard woman. Yeah. I just want our listeners to know that I am making improvements in the welfare of our podcast guests. So we are incrementally improving the welfare of the people on the other end of the microphone. So you are on a couch in aircon. So we're getting better guys. We're I'm getting pretty better. grateful. And how far out from having the baby are you now? Uh, about two weeks, hopefully. Yeah. Not going to be disappointed if it comes any sooner, just quietly. <laughs> well, as I have been telling you, I do have the magic touch. Um, I wouldn't be surprised, which is why I made you do your, you've been trying to get out of this podcast. Well, let's be honest, since I started like a year ago. Um, and I was yeah. like, if we don't do it now, you will have the baby. Cause that's just how this time last year, a friend of ours, I was supposed to record one of our first ever podcast episodes with her, Brenna, who was out at Bulka station. And we did her photo shoot and then I was going to come to her apartment uh, in town where she was staying and record a podcast that evening. No, no. She had the baby that night. So I've learned my lesson. (laughs) I'm not letting any little infants get in between me and a good podcast episode. (laughs) So thank you. Um, As people will also recognize from previous episodes, Caitlin is here, yeah, under some form of duress, but also some, she's not face to face with me. So she has logged online voluntarily. I may or may not have bribed her with Cadbury cream egg ice creams afterwards though. So anyway, you're here. That's all that counts. Yeah. Well, I grew up in uh, the Wheatbelt town of Northern, which don't judge me because it's, you know, it was a good place at the time. Now not so much, but. Isn't there, um, um, isn't there so a yeah, retirement a, village there now? Yeah, there's been one there for quite a while. I keep it's, seeing it's ads on little town. I keep seeing ads on TV, like on the GWN, where it's like it's, it's just keeps flogging some retirement village in Northam, and I'm like, okay. Anyway, go on. Sorry. <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah, so I grew up in town. Um, went to Pony Club. That was my thing. Loved horses but I never really was exposed to farming life. You know, you have like a few friends in, at school who are from a farm and they always tell, tell their um, fun stories about getting run over by sheep and all that kind of thing. And, Did you um, say run over yeah, by so, sheep? Yeah. Well, you, you get cranky sheep. That's the thing. <laughs> okay. Continue <laughs> on. Sorry. Yes. <laughs> I just love that you've gone from being run over by sheep to being run over by cattle, but okay, yeah. Yeah. I'll stop interrupting now. Huge difference. (laughs) Um, Where was I now? Oh, yeah, okay. So our local school that I went to only went up to year 10. So it was kind of like after that you either go to the school, public school, which wasn't the greatest place on earth, go to boarding school in Perth or get a trade or you could go to ag school and we had been doing ag come to our school and offer us um, a scholarship for any students who wanted to go there. He, principal came, 
sung his praises about the school. It looked awesome. All I heard was like, you get to do three days a week of uh, like in-class learning and then two days a week you get to go on farm or you could ride horses. And I was like, well, that seems heaps better than going to school. Like, (laughs) who wouldn't want to do that? So I applied for the scholarship, got it, which was, you know, there was only two people that did, but let's not let that get in the way of the good story. Um, Yeah, and I ended up at Bindoon Ag, which were probably the best two years of my life. It was awesome. Like. do you say they're the best two years of your life? No, schooling life. Oh, okay. I was about to say, when Ben listens to this, like, he's going to be cut deep. <laughs> but okay, of your schooling life. <laughs> yeah. Um, funny yeah. thing, so, what, what year did you start at? What year was that, do you think, for your, I guess, year uh, 11 for you? 2006 and 2007. Okay, yeah. So we are only a year apart. And I actually, just to think we could have met all these years, years earlier when my sister sold my horse well we shared a horse and she sold it in year nine and with the promise from my parents that we'll get you another one that's more suitable um and then I came to realize over the next six months that they had no intention of holding me onto that promise (laughs) I was like oh hell no and I actually like got all the I rang up like been doing ag college and I got like all the forms sent out to me and I filled them all in I don't remember exactly what happened or why I wasn't allowed to go there but we could have been schoolmates (laughs) But like, yeah, right. you know, it's fate. It's meant to be um, and that we ended up meeting later on. But Friends yeah, what, what, what yeah. was it like? Because I feel like Bindoon had a bit of a reputation that like there was like, I don't know, kids could be a bit naughty. I don't know, or a bit, you know, more like, um, I don't know, just push the limits a little bit. Was that, were you in that group, Caitlin? No, <laughs> definitely not. <laughs> you sound very surprised <laughs> by these allegations. I just mean that, you know, you kids, I don't know, like, cause you, cause it was like a boarding school as well though, so that you lived there and it was, yeah, I yeah. don't know. You weren't involved in any of the. Yeah. That's probably a fair, fair accusation. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, there was probably a few kids there that were a little bit naughty, but who wasn't back then? Like it's high school. You think you're like the coolest kids out, like getting around and carrying on. I don't know. Please, I'm they get a lot of kids nerd. from. Um... <laughs> I don't know. I loved it. Like the all the um, teachers are really great. They all wanted to share their knowledge. The boarding house staff they were pretty hard, but they were fair. Um, which is, you know, like looking back, you're like, wow, I probably was a naughty little turd, but they all managed pretty well. And I can't imagine it would be easy to manage a heap of girls ranging from. What was it? Yeah, eight, I think, at that time to year 12. Like, <laughs> I can't yeah. think of anything worse, to be honest. Oh, I just... In a boarding house. <laughs> yeah, I um. <laughs> do you think that experience in the boarding house, though, and it being more of a rural setting versus the kids that went to boarding school, like in the city, kind of prepared you for station life a bit more? Possibly. We were... Because we were so... um like involved in the equine program and the farming program we were always like up early like you had to have your horses done before school you had to make sure they were good after school like you you sort of like were in a pretty strict like well not strict but like there was routine yeah routine it was a yeah it was routine and you always like had to have your washing done you had to be at breakfast at a certain time it was 
yeah, it was good. Like, it, I think it definitely would have helped for sure. What you you learn, um, like, with your horses and that, you we were always like having to put them first, and that was always the animals first, which is how it is has to be when you're on station as well. So, yeah, it would have set up a good foundation for that for sure. Yeah, so you got the values instilled in you pretty early on. Was there any? Um, did you have plans for after? Were you just there like along for the ride, or did you be like, I'm going to go to ag college, I'm going to get this, and this is what I'm going to do with it? Because I'm not sure that many kids these, you know, not these days, but at any point, it's quite hard to have a plan for your life at that young age and and know what you're currently doing and how it's going to, I guess, um, manifest through what you do in the rest of your life and come to, um, yeah, come to fruition. Yeah, no, I had absolutely no intentions when I went to when I went to ag school. I just wanted to finish school. I wanted to get my year twelve certificate so then I could go and get a trade or I didn't really know what I wanted to do to be quite honest um so been doing offered us a lot of opportunities uh, we had we were ex- we were exposed to a lot of different things and the teachers there were quite vastly experienced as well like they all had really different backgrounds like the farm teachers I'm talking about here um and they all were like really really happy to share their stories over the years and we had this one really, well, he, he wasn't, well, he was actually, yeah, he was old. He was really old. Um, old drover dude. And he would just tell us the coolest yarns about back, back in the day droving. Um, he, like at the time, I didn't know what a camp draft was. And he like explained it to me. I was like, oh my God, that sounds like the greatest thing ever. And he's like, you can make a career out of that. He's like, go work on a station or go work on a cattle farm or, try something like that. And I was like, I didn't even know that was an option. Like you grow up in a little town like Northern and it's like farming, sheep or local work. And you're like, you don't really ever get exposed to that. The, the outside world sort of thing. Like you're like in a little country yeah, town. Yeah. Little bubble. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's like, yeah, he was real happy to share his stories And it just sounded like a lot of fun. (laughs) So how did you then go from being at Ag College to getting on a station? And how did you pick where you wanted to go? Well, I didn't really have a choice, to be quite honest. (laughs) Me and my um, best friend at the time, we finished school. We had a couple of months off doing what you do after school. And she, she called me one day. She's like, so... I need your resume. I was like, okay, what for? She's like, I'm going to apply, uh, apply for a job in the Pilbara. I was like, um, like what kind of job are you going to elaborate a little bit in this or, <laughs> and she's like, yeah, I want let's go work on a station. Let's do it. I was like, okay, cool. And I, yeah, I emailed her a resume or I emailed her my resume. And like a week later, she's like, yeah, we got the job. I was like, oh, <laughs> okay. That's really great. <laughs> I love that you didn't even actually have to put in any effort to get your first job. Like somebody <laughs> yeah. else got the job for you. <laughs> it's Which, quite funny. <laughs> now I'm actually, I just realized, and people will pick up on this as we go further into the episode. I'm like, if you didn't apply for that job, and I don't think you technically applied for the job after that. I'm like, when have you applied for a job? In your- anyway, people will figure that out as we go in through the story. And so where was that station that you worked on? Um, so my first uh, three years were at DeGray Station, just north of Port Hedland. Um, yeah, so we, we finished our time in Perth 
couple of months after school, packed up her old, uh, what was it? It was a Hilux. I'm really surprised that we actually made it because that thing was pretty old. Um, yeah, we packed up our life and at the, I was 17 and she was, she was 18 at the time and moved up to do grey. <laughs> And what Which was is that? Nowhere near Perth. <laughs> no, no. So that's got to be what a solid fifteen. No, Newman's fifteen. No, Newman's like eleven hundred. So it's got about fifteen hundred k's from Perth. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and so people, if the name Degray sounds familiar, the owner Mark Bettini, we had him in on episode eight, and Haley, who works for him now on Degray, was episode nine. If you guys want to go back and hint, nudge, nudge, listen to those episodes. Um, <laughs> And since then, they've, they've got a few more stations. But so at, back then, though, you were on Degray. And tell us about Degray and what it's like, because it's not, I feel like it's not what, when people think of a cattle station or when the media or somebody puts out the idea of a, you know, I'm using quotation marks, a standard cattle station, because I truly believe none are the same at all. But Degray is a little bit different. What was it like? And what can you tell us about it? Back then, it's, it was very different to what it is now I guess you could say like the, the the station itself has evolved and changed so much over time and the business as well um yeah at the time it was it was pretty daunting it's not something that you know I was ever really exposed to as a kid and I, n- I don't know why but I never really thought about actually having to work with cattle I was just like all right I'm going there and I'm going to ride horses every single day and I'm going to break in horses every single day and then like um okay so now we're doing horses and cows and now we have to actually work the cows as well and I was like okay um I don't know why I haven't like didn't think of that and turns out I was like she's scared of cows to start with (laughs) oh my god did you not have cows at ag college we did but they were like quiet and like beautiful like you could just walk up and pat them like they were like they were almost like dairy cows (laughs) and they would have been were they like angus or some kind of southern breed down there yeah, they were Gelvies and yeah. Simmentals. And what did uh, Mark have at Degray? Mark's got Brahmins. And don't get me wrong, they are a beautiful line of Brahmins and they are quite, quite, quite for station cattle. Um, but it just, it just never, <laughs> I don't know why at the time, it never occurred to me that I'd be working thousands and thousands and thousands ahead of cattle. All I was <laughs> focusing on was doing horsework. <laughs> So how far into it did you actually have to start working cattle? Like, did you get there? I know some places make you come up and then you spend like the first like month just like fencing and doing all the shitty jobs, um, which need to be done, of course. So did you, <laughs> did you have some time before you had to work cows? Yeah. Yeah. So we were, I think we got up there like end of February um, and it was still pretty hot. So we're like, I think we, one of our first jobs was like building the horse, like the old horse yards we were pretty, they were pretty run down. So we had to like cart a heap of panels in um, to build a round yard because we were having a horsemanship clinic with Heath and Kelly. Like I think it was probably like two or three weeks after we arrived. And I remember like the first job we did was build this round yard and it was so hot. And I'm like not a very large person. Like I'm quite short. And Aitlin my first job <laughs> was lugging panels around. And I was like, oh my lord like this this is actually it it actually nearly killed me to be (laughs) honest mark's like well you're gonna have to get used to this because we do it a lot i was like okay that's great to know thanks for that (laughs) 
<laughs> so yeah, we like had to build this build this round like massive round yard. That was like the first job that we did when we got there. And, and wh- yeah. What was that's pretty lucky though that you were only a couple of weeks into the job when you got to have the horsemanship school with Keith and Helly. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I have verbal dyslexia guys it's a thing I don't know I don't know if it's a thing I, I just made that up but I do that all the time with Heath and Kelly Stewart um yeah I love that I'm like I probably could have edited that out but I don't do any of that in this podcast I'm like nah what's and all we're good um so Heath who um passed away in 2018 but Heath and Kelly were amazing horse people and did a lot of schools in the Kimberley and Pilbara what Coming from what you'd learn at Ag College and Pony Club and then having that school with Heath and Kelly, what was that like? Oh, it was completely mind-blowing. Like everything that I thought that I knew about horses was just, it wasn't wrong, but it was like there's a different way. It's like, yeah, I was like gobsmacked. Like Heath, I remember the first thing that Heath we were doing was we were breaking in colts, which I'd, I'd broken in one horse at Bindu and I didn't, do it very well because I had no idea what I was doing. I still have no idea what I'm doing, but I just wing it. So it's okay. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, so he's like showing me uh, all this like groundwork, which I didn't even know was a thing. Um, and then he's like within like two or three days, no, it would have been like two days. He was on this horse and I was like, how the hell did we just go from this horse? Like barely having any like holder experience like it could barely walk to him riding it around like in circles I was like oh my god this guy's like a genius like where have you been all my life <laughs> I know it's pretty amazing um so what were some of his principles that you remember and that you still use today oh god <laughs> I love uh, that I'm asking that I'll just again <laughs> we're asking the heavily pregnant baby brain woman. and baby brain they say it's a real thing so it right, is we'll like give you a minute to think. a real thing <laughs> Um, I think the biggest thing is just to, was just to really have a good understanding of what your horse is trying to tell you. Like you, you, you're working with your horse, not against it. Um, yeah, I'd, I'd reckon that like you just, you really need to pay attention to what, what it's trying to tell you. And every horse is so different and you think you've got it and then no, you definitely do not. (laughs) I can definitely commiserate with you there. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> and so then how did the rest of that first year um, unfold at Grey? So you kind of, you came there, you had your initiation by panels um, and then, but then, you know, you got a bit of a reward with this amazing horse school. And then what was the yeah. rest of the year? Like how long did you, it was a season on Grey? Like when did you start and finish? Oh, I think we started like in March or April and would have gone to November. Like Grey is a pretty big property. Um, and he had that year was, we were all pretty green. So <laughs> I can only imagine how frustrating that probably would have been for Mark at the time. <laughs> oh. Oh, looking back, but it was great. Like Mark and Narelle are fantastic teachers and they really care about their staff. If the staff give a shit about what they're trying to do and if they want to learn, they were very, very, very happy to teach. And yeah, that really set me up for the, the rest of my sort of working career up here. Like Mark gave, Mark and Narelle both gave us uh, really good, good foundations um, to start with. I think Mark did like a Jim Lindsay school the year before at the end of the year in Karatha, I think it was. 
And then that year of 2008, he was like, right, this is exactly what we're going to be doing. And he drilled us so hard with the low stress um, livestock handling. And I'm so glad that that was like the first interaction that I had with working with livestock was doing it the low stress way because it's so rewarding. <laughs> no, and, and that's so good for the cattle. Yeah, and it's really lucky that, like you said, that was your first experience because if that hadn't have been, habits are hard to break. And that's why some people say, you know, there are some people out there who need experienced people, but some people like would rather hire somebody, depending on the person, of course, that, you know, if, yeah. even if they're inexperienced, as long as they're willing to learn, um, but they yeah. you know, they don't have those bad habits. Whereas if you've been doing something your whole life one way or for a certain period of time, it can be pretty hard. To, you know, that's like I see people now, even they go to school, um, and you're so used to having something in your hand, like whether it's a piece of poly pipe or a jigger yeah. or something. And you ha- then you go to a school and you go, okay, this is what I'm going to do now. And just rem- only use it when I need to. But if you just got something in your hand, you end up using it anyway. And habit- yeah. habits are pretty hard to break. Absolutely. Absolutely. I still like, I find myself some days like you, you always like some days you just get that frustrated and you're like, all right, I just need to stop, take a deep breath. And then all of a sudden everything just like goes back to normal and the cows are just flowing properly. And you're like, okay, so the problem was me. <laughs> it was yeah. definitely me. Like Not 90% the <laughs> of the time, it's definitely us. Definitely. Um, <laughs> so what about, tell me about a few things, I guess, in your time at Degray that kind of stand out in your memory for you. Also, again, noting that this is over 10 years ago and that you are heavily pregnant. <laughs> um, but obviously, you know, it gave you a, pretty uh, solid foundation for the rest of your career in the northern beef industry and you would have had a, it was, would have been all your first time experiences and you would have just would have been I don't know just overwhelming like you were learning so much but what what stands out in your memory for you I think the biggest thing was probably how much effort at the time Mark and Narelle were putting into their staff um, and how much of an emphasis it was that people are important too. Like it's, you get out on a station and it's like cows, horses, blah, 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 blah. Let's get this job done. And it's like, yeah, but at the end of the day, you still need to look after your people as well. And teaching them properly and being patient with them because not everyone is going to pick it up the first time they do it or the second time. Or if you're like me, sometimes the third time. So (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> or you can be like and, me and 10 years later you still haven't picked it up but anyway <laughs> and then and it's so every situation is different and every um every outcome is different to the situation too and you have to adapt so quickly on the job about what's going on like you're out mustering and it just turns to shit and you're like okay so I have two choices I can like panic or I can try and do something and of the time, if you're trying to do something, then you're doing the right thing. (laughs) You know what I mean? Um, But yeah, that's probably the biggest thing. And I think that's so good to hear though, because not everywhere as I've tried to, I feel like this is the same like dead horse that I keep flogging is to try (laughs) and drive this point across to people who haven't yet come into the industry is that all stations are different, different like sizes, shapes, um, structures you know cattle you know whatever um and there are places where they don't you know 
it's not the same as like a degree, like everyone's different and for their own reasons, of course, as well. So it's not whether it's a case of being right or wrong. There's a reason yeah. why every place is the way it is. And so there are places like Mark's or like, um, you know, where Mark and Narelle were taking the time to really train you guys and teach and put a lot of emphasis on the people. And there are other places where, you know, they may just get a few backpackers in and, you know, just get it done. And, and I guess everyone has a different need and want in their staff. So, but if that's something that yeah. you're wanting, that's one of those things to yeah, be aware of and ask before you go for a job. Well, people, I guess, with the foresight now, um, whereas we didn't have this podcast or any of these stories when we before we went out there. But, yeah, mm. I think, um, yeah, it's good that that's for people. And I, I can actually vouch and say that they are still like that at Degray Station today. It was only a few weeks ago Mark put a bunch of his staff through um, the MLA Breeding Edge course. He puts them in more livestock handling schools. They still have horse schools, like shoeing. Yeah, shoeing. Yeah, they still. There's still a lot of staff education there. So, yeah. Absolutely. Anyway, what else sticks out in your mind? Well, I think like, remembering that Mark will be listening to this. I know. <laughs> and That's why own. I'm trying to <laughs> word this properly. <laughs> Um, I think like the big, like your first big muster sticks out always in your head. Um, or the transition actually probably for me, the transition between the beginner plotter horse to the chestnut mare. That's like the, (laughs) one of my biggest ones. I remember when I first started working at DeGray, I, Mark used to put me on the beginner horses, which I'm grateful because it built my confidence up so much and they were great great horses and then you sort of like transition from those actually do you know what he used to do he used to put me on the biggest horses that he had so we had these two big like 16 17 hand x i don't even know what they were but they were monsters and he's like i just want to see you try and get on (laughs) thanks Thanks, yeah, you would, wouldn't it have been so bad if you like mounted up off the side of a U or like something like that when you were, you know, first like going, but if you had to get off during the middle of the day to like go to the bathroom or something, how the hell did you yeah. get back on? Well, I'm lucky I was a little bit more nimble than back then than what I am now. <laughs> well, definitely considering you're like nine months pregnant. So <laughs> I don't think you could mount a Shetland pony at this rate, Kayla. No, no, I definitely would not even try. <laughs> I could barely walk. <laughs> And so what was the day that you moved from the plotter to the elusive chestnut mare? And how did that day turn uh, out? Fantastic. Like, um, so this little chestnut mare, I'm, I'm not just like putting all chestnut mares in the same basket, but she was a different horse and she taught me an awful lot. <laughs> and I'm very grateful for Mark pushing me to, uh, to, to move on to that next level of horse. Um, she was amazing. I ended up buying her actually when I finished at Degray. Wow. So <laughs> I liked her that much. When you say she taught me a lot, what did she actually teach you? Oh, um. I'm just thinking of people <laughs> that perhaps, you know, we've got a variety of listeners and some people will be horsey and some won't. And for the people that may not, if we can, yeah, just spell it out a little bit. Like what does, I mean, I'm trying to think of, yeah, yeah. Horses teach us a lot, but they can teach us so many different things. What's, yeah, Shit. what did she teach you? Yeah, I know. Sorry, oh. I'm gonna. <laughs> no, We're getting, getting away real with, deep here. Yeah, no, getting away with the easy answers here. Um, she was just a difficult. I wouldn't say actually. I can't. I couldn't say that she was a difficult horse. She was a smart horse. Um, and she just kept you on your toes. You always had to be riding her, or you always had to be working with her. You couldn't. You couldn't shut off. You couldn't 
just plot along and hope for the best because as soon as you tuned out, she'd make sure that you were paying attention again. <laughs> and she was a brilliant horse. Like she was great with the livestock. Um, she was great to ride. She was definitely a challenge. Um, she taught me a lot about, um, oh, yeah, I don't know. Sounds like she kept you pretty honest. Yeah. Yeah, she was. She was my favourite horse to ride to and it was, you know, like you, you wanted to take her out every muster because she was reliable. Um, you knew you could trust her. Like she'd always she'd always keep you on your toes but you, you could always trust that she was going to do the right thing by you. Yeah, yeah. Um, so like she had a lot of heart. Like she wasn't didn't have dirt oh yeah. in her but at the same time she had some independence and some, some spirit to be oh like, yeah, oi, we're both independent. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, she was just a great, great little horse. Um, like, I think everyone probably has that horse in their lifetime that, like, changes how how they, probably not so much ride, but how they, like, approach and handle horses. Yeah. Like, okay. she, she was, like, she was sensitive. She was um, moody at times. And it's, like, you just learn, like, just learning different ways to work with her through those those times herself um like you you go from a horse that you can just saddle up go for a ride and it'd be perfectly fine every time to a horse that's like oh don't do my girth up too tight or like <laughs> oh my god that's a scary rock and you're like okay it's fine like let's just get through this together <laughs> if the rock takes you down it takes me down too buddy yeah absolutely uh-huh. <laughs> Ag Workforce specialises in recruiting for agricultural jobs, including farm work, station work and agribusiness across Australia. View current jobs, advertise a position or register as a job seeker at agworkforce.com.au. You were at Degray for three years. What was your reason for moving on after that, that much time there? um I met a guy (laughs) (laughs) okay good I was just making sure this is where I was like I'm pretty sure that's why she left now we'll get we're going to come to the story of you and Ben now but as I uh, just double checked with you before we started recording I feel like different people have different um not different people sorry you and Ben I've heard different (laughs) stories about the first time you met or and that sort of stuff so what is your version and what is Benno's? <laughs> well, we first met, I, this is how I saw it. We first met at the Marble Bar Races in um, 2010. Yeah. 11. Oh, I can't remember. Anyway, um, yeah, first met at Marble Bar Races and we just like, just as friends, talked about cows and helicopters and all that kind of thing. Like if anyone knows, anyone who knows Ben, he loves to talk about helicopters and cows. That's like his thing. Um, and then like we just didn't see each other until uh, I think it was Panna. Yeah, Panna Rodeo. We caught so, up again. and So Marble yeah. Bar is first weekend of July every year usually and then Panna's. Not this year. No, not this year. <laughs> um, and, and Panna is, I want to say like, Start of September. Yeah. Okay. Now, but so what's Benno's version of this though about the first time he saw you? Well, Benno reckons that we met at, um, 
Yeah, so it was 2011. Um, after the live export ban, they had a um, pastoral meeting at Roebuck, I'm pretty sure it was. And all the, well, me and a couple of the girls from the Degray crew went up to sort of get our heads around what the hell was going on. And yeah, he reckons that we met then, but I'm pretty sure the interaction was like us beelining it to the car because we were on our way to Matzo's. <laughs> and he was like, with his parents and they were talking to Mark and uh, blah, 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 carrying on. And I was like, we, we need to go to the pub. Like we haven't been anywhere for like two months. Let's go. <laughs> and I don't actually remember meeting him then. So, I love that. <laughs> Benno spots the future, his future wife across the room. <laughs> Meanwhile, she's got her eyes firmly locked on Matzo's, which is 40 k's away. <laughs> Matzo's brewery. Um, what a story. I love that. And then, okay. And then, so, well, that, it just makes me think though, you know, Benno noticed you then and he remembers that so that when you think that you met for the first time at Marble Bar Races and you're like, oh, hey, nice to meet you. He knew yeah. exactly who you were. Like that yeah, wasn't an knew. accident that you guys ran into each other. <laughs> oh, I don't know. <laughs> well, if it was, sucks to meet him now. Cause, you know, <laughs> was it nine sucks years later and he still, yeah, still hasn't shaken you. Um, <laughs> And then so tell us about Benno and where you went after Degray and how that all unfolded. Yeah, so I met, yeah, met, met Ben at Marble Bar and Panner and we sort of, we'd both just come out of like pretty serious relationship and I was like, look, I don't want, I don't really want anything. I want to go work in Queensland next year on a stud, um, which is a stud that Mark used to buy his bulls from. Um, and then he just like started spinning all these really cool yarns about chasing bulls and flying helicopters. Like we didn't do that kind of thing at DeGray. Like we didn't really have any scrubbers. So everything was coach mustard and everything was nice and quiet. And so I was like, oh yeah, that sounds pretty fun. I haven't really been exposed to anything like that before. And, and he's like, yeah, well, by the time, like by the end of the year, he had me, <laughs> he had me <laughs> convinced that it was a good idea to go and work for him and his family um, on their station. And I was like, well, may as well give something else a shot. It means I don't have to move all the way across the other side of the country. <laughs> yeah. And so, um, but, and so that station was Warrawagain, which is just east of Marble Bar, I suppose, on the edge of the desert. Um, yeah, I actually and, have a map in front of me right now and I can see it. <laughs> yeah. And to be quite honest, like it's literally two stations up from DeGray, like up the river. And I didn't even know that it existed or that there was, you know, like we, we had Yari next door and it's like, I didn't even think there's anything else past Yari, but yeah. apparently there was. <laughs> there definitely is. Um, <laughs> yeah. I also just love, and I love that Benno is going to be listening to this and all his mates, but I love that Benno also yeah. was like, hmm, I found a girlfriend, well, potential girlfriend. I'm just going to bring her to me so that that way next year I don't have to worry about having to go back to all the races and rodeos to see her. Like, I'm going to just move her in. Very yeah, smooth, Benno. Very efficient. Yeah. Well played. And yeah, come and work for me. And he doesn't ha- didn't have to find like an extra staff member. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Two for one. See. <laughs> Yeah, you're a thinker, Ben. You're a thinker. <laughs> As I say that, I'm just like, oh, God, this is going to be awful the next time I see him after he's listened to this. <laughs> anyway, um, so Warragun is quite different to DeGray. But I want to say, so DeGray is about a million acres. Is I thought Warragun, is that about the same size as well, though? 
yeah, about the same size, but very, very different country. Country, yeah. Um, de- yeah. So DeGray's all like, um, actually DeGray's like got the best of everything. So it's got like your big buffalo flats. It's got the marine plain. It's got the river and it's got um, like your good, really good spin effects country as well. So um, DeGray, I mean, sorry, Warragon obviously doesn't have the marine plain because it's in the middle of bloody nowhere. Um, but they've got really nice uh, roback plains flats um and a lot of river country and a lot of um what do you call do you call them like ridges or um i don't like big rocky outcrops like yeah that's the one yeah yeah yeah, yeah. like it is the drive from yari to warragain it's like okay i've got to look at the road but you're like just want to turn your head left and right and it's so and like so i guess it's safer i guess as you drive out of oregon because it's kind of in front of you but oh my god it is so pretty like it just makes property it is um it's funny i met a girl a few weeks ago who went out to a station in the kimberley she's from america um but then because of all this stuff that's happening at the moment, she's just returned home, you know, better safe than sorry. And she sent me a picture of these rocks where somebody had been like, oh, look at this amazing landmark in Nebraska. And she's like, I used to think these were so amazing. And she's like, and then by being out by Halls Creek, I'm like, we had those everywhere on the station. Like <laughs> all of a sudden, everything in my home country is not special. And I'm like, damn right. But yeah, Warragun's beautiful. And so what was it? It's quite different to DeGray. Um, so DeGray, you did everything on horseback. Did you have any horses yeah. that you used at Warragun? Um, no, we, I had, we had horses there, um, that we did try and do a little bit with, like I had Scratchy there and, um, Ben's sister had a couple of horses and it just didn't really work with the program, which is fine. Like we, um, we just had motorbikes and, uh, bull buggies and it worked perfectly. Like we still coach mobbed all of the musters. Uh, we still walked wieners. We still trained wieners exactly the same as what we did at DeGray. It was just on a motorbike instead of on a horse or in a buggy. So, And what was yeah. the dynamics like going from, I'm not sure about the crew you had at DeGray, but um, what was it like at Warragun? Were there many other girls or? Um... <laughs> not really. <laughs> no, was... you, I'm trying to remember. I, don't, I, don't, I feel like you might have been one of the only ones aside from the family members, but were there other girls in the yeah. crew? Um, there was, it, it sort of varied. Like we got the vet students every year so you get a couple of girls then um and the truck driver's wife um she was in the crew as well so it's sort of just like me and her and the rest were all boys so it was like seven or eight boys <laughs> <laughs> and now is um the opportunity i'm mean, gonna i mean your in-laws love you to death you know regardless <laughs> but i'm gonna give you the opportunity yeah. to just suck up a little bit more what was it like uh working for the mills family it was fantastic to be quite honest. Like it's, it's an odd dynamic going from um, like Mark's family, like Mark's is still family run, but it wasn't like you weren't a part of the like actual family. Whereas coming into Warragine, being with Ben, um, yeah, it was, it was a great experience. Like they're such, such lovely people and they all, they pretty well just like, took me under their wing like straight away they're like okay you're one of us now <laughs> there is no escape <laughs> and true that because like we said nine yeah. years later I still haven't escaped yeah. Dunnings is your local distributor of quality fuels and lubricants throughout western Australia Dunnings fuel operate their fleet of trucks 24 hours a day seven days a week 
and on a daily basis, Dunnings have trucks operating throughout the whole state. Dunnings keeps the whole state running. Find out more at dunningsfuel.com.au. When you were at Warragain, sorry, Warragain, I know some people just call it Warragain or like miss out. So it's W-A-R-R-A-W-A-G-I-N-E. Yeah. yeah, so yeah. Wara Wagan, but some people just call it like Waragan and you're like, no, there's there's extra syllables in there, don't cut that out. Um, <laughs> for anyone listening that maybe. Anyway, um, I just remember one time, I think it was Kelly and we were at Marble Bar Races 2018 and so she'd met some people that were like, oh, something, something, Waragan, and she's like, it's Wara Wagan. Anyway, so I've always <laughs> just been like, don't ever miss out that extra syllable. Um <laughs> That's where you were when we started the Central Station website and you, I don't even remember how we roped you into writing for us. I didn't have a choice. No, but I, didn't, I don't think I knew you that well then because we didn't really like meet me until 2013. And this, oh no, no, well, 2013 was when we, hmm, I'm just trying to remember because Jane had the original contact list of all the stations that said they'd do it. Hmm. I don't really remember how you got in, but yeah, you were the, you were the poor person on behalf of Warrior who had to write all the stories. And I want you to, um, if you can, with whatever memory you've got left, there was one that's always stood out to me. It's called That Day and it's about, um, it involved the RFDS and you just, the way you've written a story, there's a lot of detail and it makes you feel like you're right there. So I thought, I reckon our listeners would really enjoy, especially because that's a blog from 2013. So a lot of the people that have since joined our readership and listening to the podcast since then may not have gone that far back into what we've published on the website. So they may yeah. not be familiar with the story. So I thought we would have story time with Caitlin Mills <laughs> and you could take us through <laughs> that day. Yeah. So it was like end of master. We sent everyone home. Um, it was just, just a skelly crew. So there wasn't many of us there. And what's a skelly we, crew for people that may uh, not know? Skeleton crew. Skeleton crew. So, like, it's just, like, the bones of the the operation. (laughs) Thank you. Um, Sorry. (laughs) Um, Yeah, and we'd bought a shed and we were in the process of learning how to construct a shed. Like, station people were like, all right, let's do all of the things and be good at all of the things instead of just getting somebody from town to do it. So, we decided that we needed to build a truck shed to keep the trucks thin um over the wet season and yeah we we'd been doing that at night time because it was hot as during the day like where like in the desert so it's like 45 50 degrees every day sort of thing um so we're doing we're pulling the night shift i was doing all the cooking and the boys were building this shed at night which you know they were kind of winging it, <laughs> to be quite <laughs> honest. This like, is a big shed. Like, it's like, I don't know, it's monstrous. You can fit, like, three or four triple road trains next to each other. Like, wow, it's quite the structure. Yeah. Um, yeah, so everyone was just out um, helping build this shed. And it was, it was actually in the evening, so they must have um, started a bit earlier than, than what they had been. Um, and I was just in the cookhouse doing my thing, getting dinner ready. And Ben, like, comes, like, roaring in. He's like, Darren's hurt himself. I was like, what? It's like, Daz has hurt himself. I need to call the RFDS. I was like, okay. Uh, do you want to elaborate? Like, do we need to maybe just, like, calm down a little bit before we call the RFDS? And he's like, no, no, no. We need to call the RFDS. Okay. So went into the office and 
called them up and and he's like, or oh, what's happened? I was like, um, to be quite honest, I'm not really sure. <laughs> <laughs> he's like, well, you probably need to be onto that. Um, and then Ben comes back in and he's like, he's, he's flipped the quad bike and he's really, really hurt. And I was like, okay. Um, yeah. So we're talking to RFDS about what had gone on. I went outside because I had to. I had to know. I was like, I can't just like try and relay this message to the RFDS if I have absolutely no idea what the hell has happened. Because the office is in, you know, far away. Phone didn't reach to where the car was. Same scenario. Distance too hard. So I went out to see him, see what happened, and he's <laughs> he was sitting in the Ute, and he was in so much pain. I was like, what the hell? What's what's going on? Like you guys are just you're being so like careful down there like what's happened he's like oh you just flipped the quad bike I was like what <laughs> why was he yeah, on a quad like, bike um they just had the quad bike down there so they could like because the shed where that oh. building was like 500 meters from the house so they're just using the quad bike to come up and get tools and so they're traveling short distances and he's still managed to flip it like, okay yeah. <laughs> no judgment yeah yeah here. yeah yeah, yeah. Sorry, guys. um <laughs> Um, yeah, so from what I can remember, I think he'd, he was riding along and he'd hit one of the footing holes or something along those lines and he flipped it over and landed on the ground and the handlebar like hit him in his sternum or like, so he couldn't breathe all that efficiently, (laughs) which is understandable. And yeah, so you just like. First thing, can't breathe. Okay. Well, like really struggling to breathe. Um, you, it's, yeah, you, you certainly panic. You're like, oh my God, please do not perish on me right here. Um, but he was still quite alert. Um, still like could talk just. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I went back in, talked to RFDS and they were like, righto. Um, because it was like, would have been like five five thirty in the afternoon, six o'clock. Um, it was getting pretty dark. They're like, "Well, we're not going to be able to send a plane out because we can't land in the dark." Um, and it wasn't like overly life threatening. I'm sure, like if it was a heart attack or something like that, they probably probably would have made a a more of an exception. But yeah, so we we got him. Um, Got him sorted. The RFDS um, advised us to administer some morphine for him. And back then it was just like the intramuscular jab that you uh, that you had to give. Like nowadays we've got the, the green whistle oh, in the RFDS yeah. kit. But, mm-hmm. but back then, yeah, it was the morphine jab. And Ben's like, I'll do it. <laughs> so he... <laughs> pretty, pretty keen, volunteered straight he away. He was confident. Well, we always get like the RFGS will come out and they teach you how to do it. Yeah. But when the time comes to actually doing it, it's kind of like, you want me to stab that man? Like, <laughs> Even though I've like administered injections to like thousands of cattle this thousands year. Of cattle, yeah. Human? No, thank you. Oh my goodness. Yeah. So Ben, I got so, yeah. volunteered for that. Yeah. Ben took the lead on that and just nailed it. Like just confident, backed himself. He, he was, he was fine with it. Um, so we got Daz, Daz got his morphine injection and, um, Dave and I took him into town, <laughs> which was 
my old bar's about 140 k's from where we're going. Ooh, and, and most of that is dirt. I was going to say, yeah, that's dirt road. And so tell me again, why did you have to t- – so is it was there lights on the airstrip in town? Is that uh, why? Yeah, so – Okay. Yeah, they could they could land in Marble Bar because the airstrip has um has lit lights up. on it. Yeah. yeah. But Gosh, we it... didn't have lights on our airstrip. Doesn't that make you want to like run into Bunnings and get those solar lights and go put them <laughs> like everyone that's listening to this right now and like go order some from Bunnings and like light up yeah. the airstrip. Um, <laughs> well we yeah. had like you can actually we had these little like tins that were full of oil. So you could like if the situation was like dire enough. I'm sure that they, they would have made the exception, but because he was still breathing quite fine, he was in a lot of pain, but he wasn't like Yeah, dying. they didn't want to risk themselves as well. Um, yeah, and they were busy too. Like they, was, they were having to divert planes to come back to come pick him up from Marble Bar. They were, I think they were pretty like tight with their, their plane operations where they had them. So it was kind of like just getting to Marble Bar and we'll pick him up from there because that'll be safer for them. And yeah. I guess that's one thing we never really think about or discuss is that we're always like, oh, thank God for the RFDS. We're so lucky to have a service like that. But you never really kind of think of the scenario where, you know, there is a limited number of planes. And if it's a day where everyone's having some shit luck, um, you may actually have to wait. It's not just waiting for them to get to where you are in the middle of nowhere, but the plane could be a fair way away or, on the way yeah. to Perth or some other major centre with other patients. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, okay. And so how was, da- how was Daz during that drive? Were you driving or was Davo driving? No, Davo was driving. I was just uh, sitting in the back with him, like just keeping an eye on him, monitoring him, like his pulse and his, yeah. how he was breathing. And he just ended up like he had like this hell crazy reaction to the morphine and he was just tripping the whole way into town it was what it was it was funny but it was also quite scary because he'd go from being so talkative and like he was talking about ducks and like all sorts of weird things like it's pitch black like it's night time you can't see anything Um, and so you're having to like try and race into town as best you can meanwhile you're on a dirt road with limited visibility where there's yeah. cattle that are, can be on the road. So that's, yeah, even yeah. more. Wow. And so, so you're, what, trying what, like, you're trying to hook in and get him into there, but you don't want to crash at the same time. <laughs> um, and what other kind of things was he talking about when he was on his little trip? Oh, it was just random. Like he just, he'd just be like silent and he'd be sitting back in his seat. And then all of a sudden he'd just like throw his head forward and he'd be like, did you see that? Did you see that back there? like what you were just asleep like you didn't see anything (laughs) (laughs) oh goodness and what happened when you got to town like was that just the longest drive of your life yeah it was and poor Davo was like Dave like Daz and Davo are pretty good mates so he was worried about him the whole time he was like how's he doing he's okay I'm like yeah he's like He's semi-passed out, but he's still breathing, so he's fine. <laughs> Actually, you guys um, all would have been pretty young back then as well, wouldn't you? Yeah. Um, like early 20s? Yeah, would have been. Yeah, because I'm just thinking, because Davo's still kind of young now. So, and how many years ago? Davo would have been like 20 at the time. That's pretty, yeah, yeah that's hectic. Or maybe, no, yeah. maybe, even, maybe even younger, actually. Was this 20, 
do you think this is 2011 this happened was this your first year at Warrawa guy I think it was yeah so I would have been like 21 and David would have been about 20 I think yeah oh that is yeah that's intense um, yeah and it was kind of like it was just us at the station like it was just the crew like all the all the higher ups like Robin and Lyle had gone away on holidays and Scott and Annie were away on holidays so it was kind of like the young kids <laughs> just like left there there was obviously like older staff still there but yeah and yeah, you were we'll all just... responsible but it's your first time in that situation um yeah I think it didn't matter who was going to be there with you you still would have yeah it would have been a lot to to process yeah um, it was and but it was it was good too because it's sort of being in that situation and having the result that it was like it was a good outcome like he was he was injured, obviously, like he um, separated his diaphragm off his sternum, and that's why he was. Oh, <laughs> yeah, that's why he was having cool. so much trouble breathing. <laughs> we we were worried, like punctured lung. We were like, okay, God, this guy's like punctured his lung. We need to get him in, like real quick. I didn't um, even know you could do that. That's gross. Yeah, I know. Yeah, it would have been. <laughs> I <laughs> would have hurt like, so that's bad. Gross. <laughs> like, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um. um do you think coming out of an experience like that, though, surely you would have gained some confidence? Because at that point in time, you had no choice but to step up. Whereas if the other, if there were other people there that were more senior to you, they would have stepped in and handled the situation. But because they weren't yeah. there, you had no choice but to step up. And then you, yeah, you made it through to the other side. And then all of a sudden you're like, well, okay, we've been in an awful situation now and I, and I handled it. So you know that if this were to ever happen again, you could handle it. Yeah, definitely. You um, you gain a lot of confidence from something like that. You you really know you can back yourself. Um, in any yeah any sort of um, emergency accident situation. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so, what happened um, when you got to town? So when when we got to town, we took him to the nursing post in Marble Bar, mm-hmm. and we got there, and the um the nurse went over him. Um, the plane hadn't arrived yet. They were still on their way. I'd sort of been in contact with them throughout the the drive where we had phone reception, um, still talking to them every now and then. And, yeah, so we got into town. Um, the nurse looked over him. He sort of sort of established that he hadn't punctured his lung just because he, he was listening to his lungs through the stethoscope and everything seemed to be okay. So the the panic sort of leveled out then and it was kind of like okay we're here now he's he's safe um and yeah we we were there for probably I think it would have been like half an hour and he got the call to take him up to the airstrip so we headed up to the airstrip and then they couldn't get the lights working (laughs) on the airstrip um because it's just run by like a little generator and I don't even know when the last time that would have been started so they had like the planes like circling around like just waiting for the lights oh. to come on and oh mate at the airstrips like up there like trying to drain the fuel and trying to clean the spark plug and like yeah it was a bit hectic again we were like oh my god not again like <laughs> in the situation in a situation like that who so you've come into marble bar which is a tiny tiny little town like yeah pretty much like i don't know I don't want to say like 30 people, but I don't know, probably 30 people. Um, sorry if anybody from there is listening. is like, hang on, there's more of us. But it's a, yeah. but it's a huge social centre for everyone in the surrounding uh, region to come into. But 
so you've got the nurse at the nursing post and then you need to go to the airstrip, but it's just an airstrip. It's not an airport. Who is the person that is like, I'm the guy that goes and works on the generator and turns on the lights and I'm on call for this stuff. Like who the hell is that person? I have no idea to be quite honest. (laughs) (laughs) It was all just like, it was just a blur. Like the whole thing. It was like, all right, this has happened. This is what we're doing. This is what has to happen let's make it go, get to town. And then it was like, okay, the nurse has seen him. He's fine. And then it's like, okay, now let's get him to the airport. And then it was like, it wasn't, nothing was happening. And I was like to the nurse, I was like, who's like responsible for all this? And he's like, I can't even remember what he said. He was just like, oh, such and such will be out here soon. And it was pretty casual. So I was like, okay, so if the nurse is that casual, like it's probably going to be fine. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, and so did the lights come on eventually? Yeah, yeah. So old mate got out there and fixed the lights and the plane landed and we, um, he was already on the bed because he'd been put, um, when the nurse put him in the back of his little troopy on his bed and wheeled him out and put him on the plane and then it was just like, it's done. (laughs) Do you remember what kind of date? Was this like a weekday or a weekend, do you think? Oh, I have no idea what i'm what i'm trying to get to is like (laughs) was the ironclad open did you go to like the pub did you go to the pub afterwards were you like okay we'll go back to the station yeah no we didn't we were we were pretty like frazzled um we were like got into the car and we're like right now we've got to drive all the way home again (laughs) yeah which did that feel like because you would have been able to go slower um because there wasn't that urgency and yeah. it's even later at night and, you know, that yeah, risk of cattle on the road. But did that drive back feel slower or faster than the drive into town? No, it felt slow. Like, it felt like a long drive. Like, Davo and I just sort of, like, fully debriefed the whole way home. We were like, oh, wow, that was, like, pretty hectic. Wow. <laughs> and when we did like, you... what could we do different and how could, how could it, like, have been different? Like, imagine if he had actually punctured his lung and it was, yeah. you know drowning in his own fluid like it's like how many different scenarios could there be (laughs) and so it was I suppose like a a genuine accident if he had you know just um accidentally you know put his wheel into a a hole that maybe he wasn't aware that was there did you obviously this has caused a huge amount of stress and panic and whatnot once he was kind of out of the woods did you ever get to the point where you're like does you owe me like a carton because you made me believe. like <laughs> I was scared. You had me worried, mate. Like now, did you ever kind of, were you able to kind of go lighthearted with it afterwards or was it just or like to kind of ease out of it or were you just kind of like, oh my God, I'm so glad you're okay? Um, a bit of both. Like it was, it was a huge relief. Like once, once he got into Headland and we knew for certain that he was going to be fine, it was kind of like, thank God. Like yeah. it could have been so much worse. And then it's like, you asshole, <laughs> all of that. <laughs> like, pay attention to where you're riding. Like, yeah. Christ, it's, you're yeah. on a flat and you run into a hole. Like, what's going on? <laughs> on a flat, no cattle, yeah. like, going, yeah. yeah. Um, Just poking along. <laughs> what, um, how long did he have to stay in hospital for, do you think? Um, I think he was only in there for a couple of days. And then he was in, they made him stay in Headland for yeah, a couple of days after that as well. And then he, then he come back out to the station just to recover. Yeah. And that was, so that was probably, so that was your first experience with the RFDS. Is that the only experience yeah. you've had with the RFDS? Yes. That's, <laughs> that's a pretty good track record, like once in, yeah. you know, 12 years. Um, yeah. So I'm, I'm thinking, Caitlin, 
old buddy and pal. <laughs> There's so much more I want to talk to you about because you had obviously a lot more adventures at Warragine. And then after that, you and Benno headed up to the Kimberley and then you kind of went up like near Broome and then back down again. And then now you're out further east. But I want to stretch this out into a couple of episodes. <laughs> Don't hate me. Um, because I think we've gone like we've covered a lot in this one, but there's so, I just think if I ask you all the things that I want to ask you, this will just end up being a three hour episode. Um, and I don't know, here I am at the beginning saying I'm putting the welfare of the pregnant women that I'm interviewing as a priority. And if I keep you sitting there for three hours, I don't think I can still stand by that claim. So I guess we'll, we'll chat a little bit more about Warragon and then I'll let you get back to, I don't know, waiting for me to bring you ice creams. Um, <laughs> What, I guess, yeah, because the next episode we'll pick up from after Warrawagine. But you were there. How long were you at Warrawagine for? Um, I was there for four seasons with Ben. Yeah. And so what, as like I asked you with uh, DeGray, what were the standout memories, aside from me just making you relive that one really dramatic time, of what what stands out when you think about your days at Warrawagine? Um. Probably the crew dynamic that we had there, like we were all, and we still are, like really tight, like really good. I was pretty daunted. Like it was pretty daunting for me. We had a lot of girls at DeGray. We had a few dudes as well, but going, and then going into a crew and like a well-established crew as well. Like that most of the boys had known each other for a while. They'd worked together for a couple of years. And then like me coming in as a chick, as well as Ben's partner, I was like, I was pretty nervous to be quite honest. Um, but they were all so great. Like they taught me so much. They took me under their wing as well. Um, it's just like a really great family dynamic that they had there, like through the crew and then with the family itself as well. Cause there's a big family that, um, that had the state that had the station at the time. Um, Warrawagain had like amazing staff retention, didn't they? Like people would be there for years. Yeah, yeah. So that's what I always think about when I think about those days. Like, not saying that it's any different now, but like I just remember that the crew, like it was, you'd see the photos year in year out, and like you can't start already photos, and it was just the same people. (laughs) And and I just feel like it's so different. Uh, Obviously, that there are places that that's what it's like today, but there's a lot of people now that just do a season somewhere and kind of head off where there was something yeah. I always was like, what is it about this place? Cause these people <laughs> just, they won't leave. Like they're just, no. and even now, like um, where you, uh, where you guys have been on Mandora, you're only, well, you're the two permanent staff members are from your Warrawagain days. And, <laughs> yeah. and then, then, you know, next door you've got Hopper, like, you know, the people are still all around and it's still like very much that community. Um, yeah. And then you're, cause you're, well, your brother works there now. Did he, we, did he work there when you were there or did that happen after? Um, yeah, so he did a season with us and then we all left and he stayed on. Yeah, the so, there's, now, so. so there's still a, a Mills. Oh, wait, yeah. Was, no, no, he's not a Mills. No. He's not a Mills. <laughs> I was like, there's still a Mills. And no, he's not. but there's still someone in your bloodline there there you go that's what I was trying to get at because yeah there's just something about that place that hooks you in and yeah um, it's it's just it's such a great place like the the country is amazing the cattle are amazing like the beautiful cattle and it's just so um it's so different every day like you you've got your well-educated cattle that you work and then you go down to 
like the southern end of the property and it's it's pretty wild like it's it's a totally different totally different um line of cattle like the cows that are down there the breeders are brilliant but because there's no neighbors there's some wild shit down there yeah. too <laughs> that honestly I remember one day down there and I was like we we coached up this really good little mob of cows walking along beautifully put them near the river it was the point where the boys were ready to bring the cattle out of the river to the coach mob and it just they're like righto we've got some coming out you're like righto be prepared because you know the lead's gonna the lead's gonna hit your coach mob pretty hard yeah our coach mob was so good like they were just quiet they'd walked along nicely all day and then there's just sea of red just comes out of the river and I was like holy shit like we've got a coach mob of like 200 head and they're bringing out six or seven hundred head and you're like this is either going to go one of two ways it went well but by the end of the day I was like I never thought I'd actually say this at the time I was like at the end of the day I was like I am so sick of putting bulls back in the mob. I'm so <laughs> sick of chasing bulls. I was like, if I never chase another scrub bull in my life, I will be quite happy. That obviously I, didn't happen. I Next reckon, time. Yeah, I reckon <laughs> you're the only person like I've been, I, and I'll be, I'll put my hand up and admit it, I've been that person that as you're walking, and I'm, I'm definitely not the only one, um, as you're walking along the mob and you're like, oh, it's so boring. You see something that kind of wants that, you know, is giving, this was years ago though, it gives the indication that it wants to like peel off and you're like, yeah, you kind of just hang back and give it a little bit of space and then it peels off. And you're like, do it, I do. Yeah. you're like, yes, I've got something to chase now, Um, which obviously (laughs) don't advise that. Um, But yeah, because everyone loves like. No, you know, we say we say boring is good, you know, if it's a slow walk and there's no chases, like that's what we're ever saving for. But at the end of the day, when you do get to kind of it, put some education in and kind of bring something back to the mob, it's a lot of fun. So it must have been a pretty full on day if yeah. you were like, I don't ever want to do this. Yeah, it was yeah. hectic. It was just one of those days. It was long and you just, you just spent the whole time just keeping cattle. You're like, you're on your toes the whole time. You're like, you got 10 bulls that you can see in the mob that are pretty keen to go. So you're just spending your whole time like making sure everyone's on their feet and making sure everyone's paying attention to what their cattle are doing. Then you're like, okay, you get to the end of the day and you're just like, thank God that is over. (laughs) And then you're like, oh, now I get to deal with them in the yards tomorrow. (laughs) Yay, me and them and some confined spaces. Good times. Yeah, good fun. Yeah, but... Those kind, those kind of cattle are good though because they they certainly teach you how to work different types of stock. Like it's it's all well and good to to work quiet cattle when you can, but if you go somewhere where it doesn't have those types of quiet cattle, you can learn a pretty um pretty difficult lesson pretty quickly if you're not paying attention to what's going on. <laughs> yeah, I think they teach you a lot of respect, and it's not it's not a case of I think. Um, it's not a case of, oh, well, they haven't educated the cattle properly in their wild. It's that I was still, I know, you know, stations have been around for, I don't know, some of them a hundred years, some of them, you know, aren't, aren't really that old. And yeah. from where people started off and to where we are getting today, like it doesn't happen overnight. It can take years and years to educate cattle and it's even more. And that's when you've got, you know, good infrastructure and fences and you've got a real control of your herd. But when you're in, um, 
country that is, I suppose, like parts of Oregon, you know, like there's the rocky ridges and, and river country, a lot of places yeah. for cattle to hide. Then you've got the um, unallocated crown land around you and then other neighbours and whatnot. Like it is really hard. It, it takes longer to be able to influence your mob because of all these other factors kind of getting in the way. So, um, yeah, absolutely. So while you said like, you know, maybe it was only in a few areas that they, there, were, there were a few rogues, but the other ones, you know, they yeah. put a lot of work into them. But yeah, it keeps you on your toes. And I think it, it gives you a lot of respect because um, one time I'd been like in a wiener camp for like months. And so all I'd been doing was working wieners. And then I had to go back into the regular yards and I was like, Oh my God, cows are so big. I don't remember cows being this big. And you're like, Whoa. and so you just get so complacent. And I, yeah, it does. It teaches you a lot of um, respect. And I guess it makes you more resourceful as well. Like you can't just go yeah. off the same things you've been doing and doing like, and like you said, with that chestnut mare that kind of kept you, you know, you couldn't zone out and you had to be really engaged and alert and paying attention when you rode her. I suppose that's what those cattle were doing to you. They were making you actually work for your money and, and work for it. Yeah. Absolutely. And those types of cattle are usually the ones that turn out to be the quietest Yeah. at the end of it. Like, I don't know, like some, obviously not all animals end up like that. But it take like it doesn't take a lot of work to get them to to that kind of to that place where they feel comfortable within the yards. Like you, you provide them with a good experience. It's quiet. It happens, um, and then you put them on this amazing thing called hay, which <laughs> a scrub bull has never come across in its life. Um, don't have to walk anywhere to get food. Don't have to walk anywhere to get water. They're like, wow, this is pretty good. <laughs> Yeah, whereas I suppose sometimes the ones that appear quiet are actually the ones that are just keeping an eye on you. And yeah, yeah. And, and it's, then, let's be honest, it's usually the cows that run you down. Yeah. <laughs> so, like I said, <laughs> so, like I said before, there's so much more. You know, I have already, yeah, we're doing another episode tomorrow. Um, until this baby comes out, <laughs> you are mine. Anyway. <laughs> and I know where you live or where you're staying in town. It's funny. I love it. You know, we're both here talking into our microphones and computers like we're on opposite sides of the world. So we're about like, what, 10Ks down the road from each other. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, yeah, we've covered a lot about, you know, from where you started ag school, that first, you know, experience you had out at Degray Station and then how you, as so many people, you know, it's funny because you didn't got, come up here with the plan, but. And I know this is me being a bit sassy, but there are a lot of people that you know, have the plan to you know, come up north and meet a boy. Um, you managed to do that. Well done. But that wasn't your plan. Um, and then you went to Warragine and, yeah, like Degray and Warragine, very different places and just have taught you so much. You're one of the most well-rounded people I know. Um, but I suppose that's – Warragine is where your journey in the Pilbara – ends and so that's where I want to leave this episode and when we come back we'll talk about your time in the Kimberley for people listening that you know may hopefully have a have been a bit inspired by this and want to come up and have a crack at it what would you say to them so I just say to anyone who'd want to come up here and give it a go just be open-minded um every every situation is different that you end up in um give it a go don't hold back just get into it have a crack and don't be scared to ask questions. God, don't be scared to ask questions. Just ask as many questions as you possibly can. If you don't understand the situation, if you don't understand what's going on, just ask. People are willing to teach and it's very important to ask questions. 
gosh, after listening to this episode, I feel like I want to go back out in the stock camp. Um, but then I remember that I'm old and not fit and <laughs> I can't climb the rails like I used to. Anyway, thank you so much for your time today, Caitlin. We will have another episode with you shortly and you can tell us all about your adventures in the Kimberley. Roger. Don't Sounds you have good. the baby between now and then? <laughs> promise I'll me. Pro- promise me on air so everyone can hear you. <laughs> I can't make that promise. <laughs> yes, you can. A good cowgirl <laughs> always keeps her calves together. You keep those keep your calves together. No baby's coming out. <laughs> oh god. Oh god. This is like day 10 of self-isolation. Anyway. <laughs> See you, Caitlin. See you later. <laughs>